Sergei. A slight figure with a pockmarked face, his eyes narrowly set and a nose a bit too big for the rest of his face. He stands up and moves his chair closer to the table as if to mark that the stage belongs to him. He speaks in a slow, deep voice, thick with a Russian accent. The tenor of his voice is surprisingly deep and seems unrelated to his body. My English is not the best, but I feel that I have understood Kevin's story. Kevin, I'm touched to hear what you just told us and what you are going through. Back in the Soviet Union, I knew many young men who came back from the war in Afghanistan. Most of them were angry and had difficulty speaking about what they had seen and what they had done. That war is awful and is still going on. Carlos, Russia has many children who are looking for their fathers, and your story moves me deeply. I wish your father could understand what awful thing he did to you. Joseph, you were running away from some scary people, and this is where I connect to you. In the Soviet Union, you would find scary people who operated above the law and could do whatever they wanted with you. Many of us were scared because a wrong word at the wrong time could have catastrophic consequences. All of us sitting around this table are homeless and on our own. So it seems to me that we have little to lose. My perception so far is that we have a good understanding why we have ended up here. From what I have heard so far, none of us is really crazy. We may have problems, but I think we can do something about our lives. Now let me tell you how it is that I am here now. I was an assistant professor in experimental psychology at Moscow State University, and my job was to run rats in a maze. The purpose was to understand how rats behaved with each other in overcrowded situations. The police and the army took an interest in what we were learning and they used the result to prepare tactics for managing crowds in explosive social situations, things like that. Anyhow, I got an opportunity to teach at the university in Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan. The assignment was for a year, and I was ready for some adventure and a change of scenery. I packed a few things and said goodbye to my girlfriend and my family back in Moscow. The university in Tashkent gave me a small apartment on campus, a lab with two assistants and a group of students, most of them were there to stay out of being drafted into the Soviet military. Any boy enlisted in a university program was protected from the draft board. One of my lab assistants was a young and very beautiful girl named Nasia. She was clever, dedicated to the job, and she liked to flirt with me in spite of the fact that she came from a strict Muslim family. After a few months, I started to have sexual fantasies about her. I never told her about my girlfriend back in Moscow. We used to stay long hours to run our experiments, keeping the rats busy and analyze data sitting side by side. Nasir had explained to her family why she was coming late some nights because of our workload well, and one evening it happened. We could no longer hold back our attraction for each other, and we ended up in my bed. Nasir was a virgin, and this was obviously an important moment in her life, as I was to find out. 
She started to talk about how happy she was to have found a good man like me, and she cried with joy, talking about all the beautiful children we were going to have together. She said that her father, whom I had met once, was going to be proud to have a son-in-law like myself. Nasir was already planning the wedding and described the food and the guests. I was stunned and didn't know what to say. It didn't even occur to me that this night was not just another one of my conquests. I told her how attractive she was and how fond I was of her. Marriage, however, was not on my mind right this moment. She started to cry and told me that her life was ruined and no man would ever look at her now. She talked about her virginity as the gift for me given from her heart. Was I going to dishonor her in front of her family and everybody in the world? She left in tears before I could talk some sense into her. The following day, Nasir didn't show up for work. On the third day after she left, I was preparing to go to bed when I heard a strong knock on the door. Outside were Nasir's father and her two brothers, dressed in traditional Uzbek kaftans with gold ornaments and skull caps. They were armed with shotguns and curved knives stuck into the sashes. The father put his right hand over his heart and greeted me in a soft voice. He explained to me that my home was now going to be in Tashkent, and I was going to marry Nazia. I told them that I was going to be honest with them. Marriage was out of the question, no matter how much fondness I had for Nazia. The father continued in the same low voice and told me that he well understood what I was saying, but if that were to be my decision, the family would have to kill Nazia and me. These were the rules, and there was no other way. He was serious, and there was clearly no room for negotiations. The idea was for me to move in with some relatives while the family was making arrangements for the wedding ceremony. I was also told that I would have to convert to Islam. Arrangements had already been made for me to meet with the imam that very same day. I was given a short time to pack my things while the three of them were standing guard at my door. I was sitting on the bed desperately trying to think my way out of this situation. As luck would have it, my small apartment was on the ground floor, so I quickly gathered the few things and escaped through the window. After arriving to the railway station, I bought a ticket and got on a train to Moscow. My life was saved, and I didn't have to spend the rest of my life looking over my shoulder. I didn't worry about Nasir. It was all about me. Back in Moscow, I moved back with my girlfriend and again took up my job at Moscow State University. I kind of forgot about Tashkent and the mess with Nasir and her family. A few months after my return, one early morning, there was a big bang on the door, and I opened. Outside in the hallway were Nasir's father and his two sons, this time dressed in suits. Now the voice was a bit harder, and they were going to kidnap me, no question about that. My girlfriend came to the door to find out what the commotion was all about. 
Nasir's father explained that I was coming back with them to Tashkent to celebrate my wedding with his daughter. My girlfriend started to scream and told me that she hoped that she would never have to see me again. She asked them to wait and left the four of us in the hallway. After a few minutes she came back and threw all my things in front of my feet and closed the door. The brothers held on to my arms, walked me down the stairs. Once outside the building, I made a sudden break, and I ran for my life. Behind me, I could hear them trying to catch me, but I had the advantage of being on my turf, and I managed to escape. I went into hiding in the apartment of an old childhood friend who took pity on me. The police in Moscow had no time for me and simply laughed when I asked for their protection. I found a criminal man from the Caucasus who provided me with a passport under a false identity, a U.S. student visa, and a one-way ticket to New York. I sold everything I owned to pay this man for his services. I left everything back in the Soviet Union, my job, my family, and my belongings. Now I was an erotic refugee, and here I am, homeless on the streets in New York. I don't have any money, and I'm very hungry. I have a loose agreement with a Russian man in Brighton Beach, who vaguely knows one of my Moscow friends. He has promised me to share this apartment for the next five months in exchange for taking care of his old parents and walk his dogs. The room is only available in a month from now, and until then I am on my own without any money in this unforgiving city. I am in a situation of extreme poverty and vulnerability in the richest country in the world. I know nobody, and I am so tired of this country and the people here who seem to care only about themselves. What have I done to deserve this fate? Anyhow, let me tell you how relieved I feel to have the opportunity to talk and to listen to some honest and real people. Each one of you speaks to my heart, and you inspire me in so many ways. Sergei leans back on his chair and signals that he has finished his story. After a few moments of silence, I say, David, you have been sitting here quietly. We are here telling each other some of our stories. Joseph runs for his life from Congo. Carlos' heart is heavy with mourning and grief. Kevin has told us about his painful memories from the Vietnam War, and Sergei runs away from a life-threatening situation which brought him from the Soviet Union to New York City. Like you, David, everybody is homeless for the moment and has come to us to look for shelter, a chance to talk and perhaps inspire hope in each other. I know you a little, enough to ask you if you care to share your story with us. I hope you can feel that you're safe among all of us around this table. David starts to speak. Well, let me be frank and tell you that I'm not sure that I'm safe here. I have a master who tells me what to do, and I just hope he will not disapprove if I talk openly to you men. When he comes to visit me, he lets me know that I have no worth, and I am told that I become wild and aggressive. I was born here in the Bronx. I became a carpenter like my father. I did pretty well until I got drafted in the Korean War. 
I was in my early thirties. At the time, I saw a lot of action. The years I spent there changed my life. The whole thing was just one miserable experience of fear and cold. When the North Korean army was pushed back, the Chinese came to help them. UN forces were getting ready to pull back, and my company was ordered to delay Chinese infantry pouring in over the border. We built trenches on a hill in the middle of a valley where the enemy was expected to attack. We were told that we would be evacuated after we had held down the assault. All we had were light weapons, grenade launchers, flamethrowers, and a couple of field guns. We succeeded to pin down the Chinese infantry for two full days, off and on supported by artillery bombardment from behind us. Well, we ran out of ammunition, and the helicopters never came for us. The few of us that survived the two-day battle were taken prisoners. I have some dreamlike memories from the years in a North Korean prison camp, and what I remember, I don't want to talk about. When I came back to the United States, I received a grant from the U.S. government, went to City University here in New York, where I studied philosophy and received a Ph.D. I became a bit of a star in the department, and I was offered a job as an assistant professor. One night I woke up from a loud voice asking me to wake up and pay attention. The voice told me to go to the streets of Manhattan, serving as a missionary of philosophy teach people common sense, and give them tools to examine their ways of thinking. I was told that I could make the world into a better place if I could lead people to their human nature and help them with new ways of understanding themselves in a world full of confusion. I started to go around on the streets and public places in Manhattan with the purpose to engage people with these questions. Wherever I showed up, most people turned their backs on me and treated me as if I was a crazy person. The project seemed hopeless, but the voice told me to persevere and continue my mission no matter what obstacles came in my way. At this time, my friends in the department did not want to have anything to do with me, and I lost my job at the university. I drifted around sharing my message of reason and freedom, and stopped taking care of myself. My mission to save people from their misery was the only thing that was important to me. The voice became both louder and stronger, and suddenly I was told that my mission was changing. Now I was to find absolute freedom for myself, and caring for others would no longer be necessary. I was to transcend any concern I had for rules and convention. I would have to train my mind to dissolve all habits and boundaries. And I started to look for the freedom that the voice promised me. But no matter how hard I tried, I became increasingly miserable and felt like a prisoner. The voice kept screaming at me that everything I did and think was wrong. He never gave me any help or to look. I argued with him, and I started to shout back. He refused to change his plan for me and continued to diminish me. The question that haunted me was how I could find freedom standing above the society and its limitations. I was on my own.
Before coming here, I was living under the Williamsburg Bridge. It's been a cold winter, and the men and women were breaking up boxes and things found in containers. Big fires were lit inside oil barrels, and we were crawling into makeshift shelters near the fire made from cardboard boxes and old mattresses. People from the city came around to save us from the cold, but most of us refused to accept help to go to the shelters. Several of the homeless men and women were dying from the harsh conditions, and like most of us, I was ill. My feet had become swollen and so painful that I could hardly walk, and my old shoes no longer fit me. I realized that I was facing the end of my life. When I tried to get help from the others, it was clear that no one had any energy to care for anyone except fending for themselves. One day an old man joined us under the bridge. He was at the end of his life, and nobody seemed to care what would happen to him. He was dressed in rags and was coughing violently, unable to move around. The things that caught my attention was that he was wearing some nice shoes that I thought would fit me. The voice gave me permission to take them from him and called me a coward if I hesitated. The man was dying, and I needed his shoes. That night, when nobody was looking, I took an old blanket and put it over his face. He made almost no movement in resisting me. After a few minutes, he made a low, guttural sound, and then it was over. He was dead, and the shoes were mine. The shoes fit me, and I could walk again, even if some of the pain was still there. My life was saved for the moment, but I did realize that another life was sacrificed for a pair of shoes. After a few days, the voice started to accuse me of murder, and I was shouting back that he had set me up to kill this man and had given me his permission. I became convinced that his betrayal would allow me to be free from the voice and all the demands. During a few weeks after this murder, the argument with the voice was taken to the streets, and I was shouting at him to stop following me around. The thought formed in my mind that I had to go to the police and turn myself in to receive the punishment for this crime. I went to the police precinct on the Lower East Side and told the officer what I had done. It was so hard to talk about the murder that I started to speak with a rapid voice piling up arguments for my punishment in ways that was confusing even to me. The officer told me to stop babbling and asked me to leave him alone. He was holding his nose and told me the stench from me was unbearable. He gave me the address to one of the missions at the Bowery and advised me to go and get myself cleaned up. After that, I tried again to confess. This time I approached two police officers on Delancey Street and told them about my crime. They ignored me and said that I was already punished enough. They even laughed at me and told me not to worry about it. I am so sorry for what I have done, and now I think that it would have been better to accept my destiny and die there and then under the bridge. I never told anybody about this act except the police, and I just want you all to believe me. 
Please tell me how I can save myself. The voice is still there, and he is my deadly enemy. It is amazing that I haven't had words from him while I have been telling my story, but now I'm thinking everybody is my enemy, including all of you in this room, and I feel like leaving.